time we have to be able to praise the living God. God is not dead. Amen. Amen. In fact, the scripture says that he resides in, he inhabits, he dwells in, he lives in our praise. Now, we understand that God lives everywhere all the time. So in some ways that might, you know, you might think, well, what's so special about our praise that would be uniquely identified as God's living space? But I'm convinced that it's not just that God reveals himself in a, a unique or special way, but actually as we're praising God and our focus is on him and our minds and our hearts are set completely on him, we're more able to perceive, to understand, to appreciate God's revelation of himself. There's a much greater focus in such a way that we appreciate him more in that time. And he is better able to reveal himself to us. It makes me think of um, Jacob um, in Genesis when he, he awoke from his dream and he said, surely God was in this place and I didn't know. God was already there. Just didn't know it. And so often, you know, we come in and we gather um, in the name of the Lord and we, we come some out of a sense of obligation, some out of a sense of delight and desire. And yet, it's wonderful to have that time of praise when we're able to kind of just zone in on the Lord and just allow the, 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 the other aspects of our week to just kind of fall to the wayside as we focus in on him. And that is the, the right and ready way to prepare our hearts for his word. Because as we've been looking at in Hebrews, there's a necessity that we don't become hard of hearing as it relates to hearing God's word. So we've been looking over the last uh, few weeks at just re reviewing some basics. Um, for those who don't know, as a church, our vision is to be a healthy church equipped to disciple and faithful on mission. And it's a, a vision that we are always consistently, progressively working towards seeing fulfilled. And um, the reality is that without the basics, it will never happen. And sometimes Christianity can be made out to be so much more than the fundamentals. But as we'll see from the letter to the Hebrews, actually, as, as we were talking about on Thursday, the gospel, the fundamental truth of Jesus is not something you graduate from. In fact, they say that the gospel is so shallow a baby can swim in it and yet so deep an elephant can drown in it. And so we don't graduate from the gospel, but we are to grow in maturity as it relates to our appreciation of, our understanding of, our living out and our communicating the gospel to others. I would say without trying to create any kind of hype and sensation this morning, this is probably one of the most important sermons you will ever hear from me. Now that sounds sensational, right? I'm not saying that this is one of the best sermons you will ever hear from me because I know that I'm not going to do this by any means the kind of justice that it deserves, that it needs, that it requires. 
But I just want you to understand that this is of supreme importance. We're looking at Hebrews 6, verses 1 to 3. Um, we'll read them and then I'll pray. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Father God, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for giving us your spirit. By which and through whom you have revealed yourself to us. Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby men must be saved. Truly, you are the center and priority in all things. Lord, I, I really genuinely ask that you would help us today to have ears, ears to hear what you would say to us. Especially for those of us who may really have kind of just grown quite um, complacent and lethargic in our faith. The things that we will look at today are so readily taken for granted. Even to the point of being reviewed as redundant. Lord, this is the most important, the most necessary understanding for anyone to have in life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help and help me, Lord, to just communicate your truth in accessible ways. And we ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen. So our focus has been on the gospel. And we looked last time at the big picture of the gospel. Creation, rebellion, redemption, new creation. And again, I challenge you, as the writer of Hebrews did in chapter 5, not to just consider this and hear this as it applies to yourself, but more importantly, as it, as it relates to your obligation, your duty to communicate this to others. Your responsibility to communicate this to others. It is not true that all we need to do is do good works. It is not true. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we should be in a place where we are teaching others. And yet we're, we're in need of being taught again the fundamental principles of the faith. And so we have a responsibility. We have an obligation. So as we go from the big picture, we're going we're to hone, we're going to zone in. We're going to zoom in and look at fundamental elements of the gospel. Now, as we look at these verses in Hebrews 6, it kind of gives uh, 
picture of the salvation experience from beginning to end. It looks first at the issue of repentance and faith, which is fundamental to the individual's experience of being justified before God through Christ. It then looks at the issues of washings and laying on of hands, which you could relate to the, the experience and process of a Christian being sanctified. And that basically is a Bible term, a Christian term, for what it means to be progressively made more like Jesus. So as a Christian, we're justified before God through Christ. We're declared right because of Jesus. And that, that's not the point when the story ends and we're like, okay, we're just waiting to die and go to heaven. But there is an expectation that we are becoming more like Jesus. And yet then at the end of the story, there is the ultimate expectation of glorification. Where in all of our lack, we will be made completely like him and we will be glorified. And we will experience the consummation, the completion, if you like, the, the ultimate fulfillment of God's saving work. Eternally changed, never to need change again. <laughs> Just that thought alone is crazy. And so... There's a sense of progression here. There's a sense of a journey here. And for some of us as Christians, that, that might be the first time that you're kind of hearing that actually there is some kind of progression path. You start a job, you get into the, to the company, and in your mind you're thinking, okay, is there any kind of career development? Is there any kind of progression path? Is there anywhere for me to move on in this company? And often what happens is, people get to a place when they realize for one reason or another, there is no opportunity for progression and they start to think about moving to somewhere else. Where I'm going to be able to progress in my income, progress in my responsibility, progress in my skills development, etc., etc. In the Christian journey, there is a built-in progression path. How are you progressing? Well, hopefully as we look at these elements specifically, <clears throat> they will help us. Now, this is going to be a, a Bible study. I'd encourage you to have access to a Bible in some form. Um, we are going to be cross-referencing scriptures. So I'm not just going to make bold statements and leave them out there without showing my working out, as it were. You know, when you, you, you sit, you hand in your paper and they're like, I want to see you working out. How did you come to that conclusion? Now, time doesn't permit us to exhaust every aspect of the equation, but you'll see the basic references that support the statements that are being made. Um, you may want to take pictures of the slide. You're welcome to. Just as a reminder, this is put on podcast so you can review it. I would encourage you to do so. So, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. It's important that we consider context. 
Where are these verses found? It's not a trick question. I want you to state the obvious. Where are these verses found? In the New Testament, more specifically, Hebrews. All right. So this is found in the letter to the Hebrews. Don't overlook that. Who are the Hebrews? So some say Jewish Christians, some say people of God. The Hebrews are Jews, fundamentally. It's just another way of saying Jews. That's important. Because when you think about Judaism, and you think about the Old Testament and, and their heritage as Jews, it begins to inform how they're hearing and receiving these words. So this is written to Jews. Now, as Brother Andrew said, there are those who are Jewish Christians, sometimes known as Messianic Jews. They are people who are of Jewish heritage and have come to understand Jesus to be the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. So, they're Jewish Christians. There are others who have been exposed to the gospel. They've heard the gospel of Christ, having formerly held to Moses, and they have been considering, some have even embraced it, and yet are now in a place where they're reconsidering the acceptance of Christ. And they're considering, do we go back to Moses? Or furthermore, is there some other Messiah that we're to expect? Then there were those who were just not interested in Christ, and they were seeking to just hold on to Moses. We're good with Moses. It's all right. Thank you. So you have this whole spectrum of people, three categories, among those who are being addressed by this letter. It's important that we bear that in mind, especially as you read the rest of this chapter. <laughs> this chapter has been one of the most problematic chapters for Christians throughout generations. And even today, I was in um, Cornwall at Creation Fest, and um, you know, somebody said to me, and it, it just felt like a really random conversation. I was talking with someone, and you know, they just said, oh yeah, and you know, there's all these people talking about you, could, you can't lose your salvation, but I think you can lose your salvation, because when you look at Hebrews, it, 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 it's clear, and so I don't, I, I don't really get involved in you know, trying to support that sense that um, you can't lose your salvation, and I was standing there, I was thinking, hmm. Am I really going to jump feet first into this conversation now and begin to unpack this at the, at the coffee bar and I'm about to go and do something? And I said, well, that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> yeah, because it's true. It's one way of looking at it. But to be sure, this chapter is not saying that a Christian can lose their salvation. Now, that's not our focus today, so we're not going to unpack that. But one of the reasons we're confident of that is because when we consider who it's being written to and the diverse, there are times when Jesus spoke and it says he spoke to the disciples. Then there are times when he spoke and it says he spoke to the multitude. The disciples were among the multitude 
And so people would often call that what, what's known as a mixed multitude. You had all different kinds of people in all different places as it relates to their view of Christ. So you could say that this is a letter to a mixed multitude who have the heritage of the Old Testament as part of their identity and custom. So when he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, he's seeking to establish them in maturity in the Lord Jesus. Jesus is mentioned on every, in every chapter of the book of Hebrews. And so therefore, we know he's, the, the writer is not saying that we're going to go on to some other heavy revy, another level of ideology and philosophy in God that surpasses Christ. There is none greater. <clears throat> he begins to break them down. Repentance from dead works. Faith towards God, instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Let's take the first one. Repentance from dead works. Repentance. This is something that is a, from the very first preaching of the gospel, was part of the gospel call. Repent and believe. Now, from the point of view of those who were looking to the Old Testament, they recognized that God as the lawgiver had given the Ten Commandments and they were to be observed. And in order to make up for those times when observations were not faithful, the people had to do all kinds of works and activities to seek God's acceptance. And these activities were an expression of their repentance of their self-willed rebellion against God, their disobedience, their sin in breaking the commandments, and we're now trying to express a heart that was seeking to be right with God. That's what it meant to the original hearers. Repentance is a word that's often misused today. A couple of misconceptions. People think that repentance is just saying sorry to God. Now, if you've ever had any kind of disagreement with anyone, you know often that sorry is not enough, right? <laughs> I'm not trying to get in any marital disputes this morning. But you know there's those times when sorry just isn't enough. Because you're left wondering, sorry for what exactly? You say you're sorry, but... Sorry for what? <laughs> Sorry I got caught. Sorry that you, you, you know, you, you've blown up in my face over this. Sorry that we're having to argue. But you're not sorry for the wrong that you've done, really. Because you don't think you were wrong. And we all have those times when we have a disagreement with someone and they're just like, I'm sorry, but we know they're not sorry because they think they were wrong. That's why I say it's a misconception to, to consider repentance as being merely saying sorry to God. Now that's clarified by the next two um, misconceptions. Often, when people are sorry, it's a sense of remorse. I'm sorry for the pain that I've caused. 
but I still don't think I was wrong. I didn't mean to cause you trouble. That famous line, right? Coldplay. Didn't mean to cause you trouble. Ah. But the question was, was I really wrong? So being sorry for the pain that we cause someone in and of itself, this is what the sorrow that Judas had. Why did Judas hang himself? You think like, Judas, mission accomplished. You, that's what you was about. You sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. He got captured. Like, and then you hung, hung yourself? Why? Because why? there was a sense of remorse. Because he was sorry for the pain that he caused Jesus, but he didn't realize that. He, he didn't recognize him. He didn't repent. The Bible tells us. Others have regret. Regret for experiencing pain ourselves. So, I saw a, um, I saw a, uh, uh, I don't even know what you call them. You know, like little Insta video. Somebody talking about, um, you know, being sorry when you're pulled over by the police. And it's like, well, I'm not sorry apart from the fact that I was sorry I was pulled over. I'm not sorry for speeding. I'm not sorry for whatever the infraction was. I'm just sorry for the fact that I got pulled over. And the thing was, who would it be? Who, like, who really cares about the other stuff apart from nobody wants to get pulled over by the police? And so you could call that a sense of regret. I'll do what I'm doing until I'm caught out, and then I regret getting caught out. Misconceptions. None of those things are repentance. As it relates to those last two points, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 10. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without what? Regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And so we're seeing three types of grief spoken of here. Worldly grief, godly grief, and regret. This distinguishes the fact that godly grief, godly sorrow, is that which leads to repentance. And so repentance must be something other than feeling sorry. So what is the truth? Repentance is an admission of guilt, admission that we are worthy, we are deserving of judgment. It's an admission that we are wrong and God is right. It is to turn away from sin toward God. So in the attitude of recognizing that I am wrong and God is right, I'm going to turn away from my way and turn to God's way. Some people can recognize that they're wrong and God is right and stay in that place and harden their heart like Cain. 
Cain, where's your brother? What are you asking me for? Like, am I my brother's keeper? He knew. <laughs> I mean, he just killed his brother, right? Abel. And yet still, there was a sense of hardness. Despite the fact that the Lord, I mean, gently challenged him, you know. Not even, Cain, you have killed your brother. What is this that you have done? Ground shaking, lightning flashing, you know. And yet, that hardness of heart. So to recognize that we're wrong and that God is right, even in and of itself is not complete repentance. There is that necessity to turn from our wrong to God. First John 1, verse 9. It's one of those verses that you quickly commit to memory um, after becoming a Christian. If we confess our sins, he, meaning God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this conf word confess here means to agree with God. And so God says that all mankind is under condemnation. And yet still, he is just and also the justifier. Praise be to God. So it's that recognition, that admission of guilt, and that evidenced by the fact that we are deserving of judgment. If you do not think you are deserving of judgment, then you do not really understand your guilt before God. And it's that heart and desire to turn away from sin toward God. And that in the context of dead works expresses to us, we're not going to try and clear our conscience and be right with God through doing stuff. Whether that's religious things or moral things or even the immoral dead works. Anything that we do in and of itself that is an attempt to be right with God is a dead work. <laughs> Anything that we do is a dead work. Whether you're trying to keep the law of the Old Testament or just your own standards of righteousness, reading your Bible every day, going to church, praying, and using that as a means of being right with God, they are dead works because they cannot make you right with God. All works apart from Christ's with the inability to save. And I guess that could say all works apart from Christ have the inability to save. So here's a summary. Repentance. Mankind is guilty of rebelling against the creator, corrupt to the core, condemned to judgment, and unable to do anything to remedy this. It's been in a place where we hold our hands up and recognize that. And in doing so, recognize our need to be saved by God. 
which brings us on to faith toward God. So are those who have the misconception that faith is merely a recognition in the mind. I have faith in Jesus. I, I've heard about Jesus. I know about him. Or I agree that Jesus was a good person. That's not faith. Faith is to rely upon, to trust in, to be completely reliant upon Jesus. That's what real faith looks like. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, trusts in and relies upon him, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already. Already under condemnation. Because what? He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's the reason why people are rejected by God. Fundamentally, because they chose not to submit to the Lord and put their trust in Jesus. All, all sin is just an expression of that fundamental rebellion against God. Imagine you've wronged someone, got in an argument, trashed their kitchen, stormed out the house, you've caused thousands of pounds worth of damage, your relationship is broken, it seems even irreparable. The person says to you, you know what? You have caused 5,000 pounds worth of damage in my kitchen. Now, I know you don't have 5,000 pounds to repair my kitchen, but you ought to repair my kitchen. As a result of that, I really ought not to have anything to do with you again. Furthermore, I should take you to court and get my money. And yet, you know what? Because I love you and because of the, the relationship that I desire to have with you, I'm prepared to pay that 5,000 pounds and repair not just the kitchen, but our relationship. That would be an act of immense generosity, immense kindness. What would it look like for the person to, who wrecked the kitchen to say, I don't care about your kitchen or your money. Stay there and keep it. I don't business. Do whatever you want. I don't care. 
And I don't care about the relationship either. How would that sound in response? It's a crude and weak example of what it looks like for someone to reject God's means of salvation, the given, and it wasn't just 5,000 pounds, it was his only begotten son. Faith towards God. Jesus lived a sinless life and was killed to secure the forgiveness of all who believe by taking their punishment from God. He was raised on the third day to affirm God's acceptance. Jesus done it. Jesus paid it all. It is finished. Paid it in full. Now, some of you may remember last week I asked a couple of diagnostic questions. And I said, how would you respond to this? If you were to die, why would God let you into heaven? Or why should God forgive you? And I made the bold statement, if you, if you have the word I featuring in your answer, <laughs> then you need to get a clearer grasp of the gospel. Does this help to make sense of why I would say that? Does, why, should the Lord let, why should God let us into heaven? Why should he forgive us? You can't start the answer with because I. Because I love God, because I have put my faith in Jesus, because I, all of these sound like reasonable responses, but that's not where the matter starts. It's because Jesus. It's because of what Christ has done. And so in this, we recognize that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is Christ alone who saves. It is not even Christ plus. People talk about the iPhone 8 and the iPhone 8 plus and, you know, the plus gives you the extras. The, there's no Christ plus. <laughs> Jesus alone. Why should God let anyone into heaven? Why should God let you into heaven? Because Jesus lived a sinless life and died for the sins of all who would believe in him, including mine. That's the only reason. And it's so, so important that we own these truths because it shapes our hearts and it, and it changes our attitude towards God 
and towards others, and more importantly, uh, towards ourselves. There is none good, no, not one. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot help ourselves. We are completely and entirely and utterly dependent on a rescuer. And his name is Jesus. So that's where justification is found. Now, the author goes on to talk about washings. And then I put baptisms, plural. You see, within Jewish tradition, they had various points at which they had to undergo cleansing rituals. Um, You'll remember the occasion in the Gospels when the Pharisees confronted Jesus about the fact that his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. And so, even at the time of Christ, these, these cleansing rituals were observed. In fact, going back into the Old Testament many, many years, there was an a experience of people who wanted to become followers of the Jewish faith um, that they had to be baptized. So if somebody wanted to become a follower of the Jewish faith, they were not Jewish, they, they were not Hebrew by birth, but they wanted to become a follower of the Jewish faith, they had to be baptized as a means of initiating them as being under that covenant. We see this played out in the baptism of John the Baptist. In Acts 19, verse 2, when the Apostle Paul meets some disciples and he says, have you received the Spirit since you believed? And they're like, well, we've not so much heard of that. We've received the baptism of John. The baptism of John is different to Christian baptism. The baptism of John was basically a, a, just a, a first century expression of the people being brought back into submission to the old covenant. People say, why was Jesus baptized? He was without sin. He didn't need to be baptized. You see, the baptism wasn't merely a a recognition of sin. It was more so a recognition of being submitted to God. And in the time of Christ, what were they under? Before he had gone to the cross and, and been raised again, they were under the law of Moses. So Jesus says, it's necessary that I be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. It's righteous, it's right that I be baptized and affirm the law of God, the law of Moses. (laughs) Baptism wasn't affirming him. He was affirming the law through submitting himself to be baptized. And so once Jesus had been crucified and raised from the grave, baptism took on a new significance, a new meaning. Because no longer were people to be initiated into uh, uh, submission to Moses, but people are now initiated into submission to Christ. And that's why those who had experienced the baptism of John needed to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So today we have all kinds of... um, 
different, even in Christian terms, expressions as it relates to baptism. Baby baptism, is, is that what the Bible's talking about? Um, or this phrase, baptismal regeneration. So there are those um, who claim to be Christians in their faith and yet have this view that unless a person is baptized in water, they will not go to heaven. That, that idea is called baptismal regeneration. Is that what the Bible teaches? No, not at all. Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, you could look at that and think, hmm, actually, Pastor E, you can't skip over that because it sounds like whoever believes and is baptized, like baptism is necessary to salvation. Come on now. Well, I mean, evidently, we could give the example of the thief on the cross, right? It wasn't necessary for him to be baptized in order to be in the Lord's presence. The thief on the cross cried out to the Lord, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, this day you will be with me in paradise because he knows that he weren't going to last any longer than that. <laughs> they weren't taking him off the cross to give him opportunity to get baptized. That was it. So baptism isn't a necessity to salvation, but it is an important factor within the Christian experience. Baptism declares a believer crucified, buried, risen with Christ, and initiated into the visible church. So, some of you may remember those times when emails would get sent around and they'd be like, be careful when you pull into a petrol station and you see a car coming behind you with no lights on, then they flash their lights because somebody's going to jump out and they're going to shoot you or they're going to do something to you. And this is a form of gang initiation. I don't know if anyone ever experienced that. No hands. But the whole concept of gang initiation is not something that's uncommon. And so in order to become identified as a part of the gang, then they would either get jumped in and beaten or they would be given some task to do. And once they've done this, they've, they've fulfilled their initiation into being recognized as part of the gang. Baptism is that for the believer. Church gang. Gang, gang, gang. <laughs> Baptized, church gang. Amen. And so it's that expression, it's that act of being recognized as part of the community of faith that is ordained by God. It contradicts this sense of Jesus is my Lord and Savior, he's my personal Lord and Savior, and it's private, and, you know, I don't have to go to church, and I don't have to be recognized as a part of the people of God. You know, I, I've just got m my relationship with the Lord, and that's nice. And I just work it out, my, my family and that, and... <coughs> no. 
The very act of being baptism is saying that you recognize yourself amongst God's gang, God's people. We're one people. We're not perfect, like someone said, but we're purchased. We're his. And so baptism is a fundamental and important aspect of the Christian experience as it relates to us publicly declaring our submission to the crucified, buried, and risen Savior. And so we see people experiencing baptism by immersion, where they go under the water as representative of that transition from old life of death to new life in Christ. The pool itself symbolizes the burying of the individual and symbolically them being raised unto new life. Have you been baptized? Baptism isn't an optional extra in the Christian faith, like buying a car and deciding if you want to have chrome rims or not, walnut dash or not. Yeah, that would be nice, you know. You know, increase the status, but I don't really, I can't afford it. I can't be bothered. Nah, I'm going to do without it. Uh Uh-uh. It's not an optional extra. The laying on of hands. Now, as much as, I guess, for many of us, this might be something that is actually a kind of non-issue in a sense of, hmm, we're not really kind of familiar with this laying on of hands notion. Um, and then for others of, among us, we've seen this to the other extreme, where we've not only experienced the laying on of hands, but we've experienced it forcibly, where people have put their hands on us to push us over <laughs> as some kind of indi- indication of God's power at work through their muscular biceps. Even to the extent of slain in the spirit. I remember someone saying to me, you know what, I never understood that term being slain in the spirit, you know. Which was kind of representative of somebody who was supposed to have experienced God's power through hands being placed on them and then being laid out. They said, I don't understand it because every time I look in the Bible and I, and I, and I see it refer to slain, the person's dead. <laughs> I'm not trying to get slain in the spirit out here. <laughs> So, going from a place of non-issue to extreme and abuse, there is actually a a middle ground. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a sense in which they would, um, the priests would, um, as part of the sacrificial, um, atonement sacrificial process, would get a a goat and, and lay hands upon the goat and confess the sins of the people and then send the goat out into the wilderness. And this was a symbolic act, as a representative act of the people departing from sin and um, their sins being removed from them. And so there was a sense in which the laying on of, laying on of, of hands had a, an Old Testament um, relevance. And yet we see that that translates into New Testament terms in some ways also. There is a sense in which the laying on of hands would represent blessing and even impartation 
It would also represent affirmation and ordination. So, Acts 13, verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. And so there was this sense of blessing. There was this sense of affirmation and even ordination. This is speaking of um, Paul and Barnabas as they were being commissioned to go on to do ministry. Um, 1 Timothy 4, 14 Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And so Timothy, being commissioned to ministry, was someone who received the affirmation represented by the laying on of hands of the elders to say yes and amen. And in that, there, there is, it, it is recognized that there was some kind of impartation in that instance. Now, I don't think that suggests that Timothy kind of just under the hands of the elders was just like, whoa, I can feel God. In fact, I would reckon that Paul writing this to Timothy suggests that he didn't have that kind of experience. Because he's highlighting something that he wants Timothy to recognize and remember. So it's not necessarily a case that this sense of impartation is going to be, you know, felt in your senses and you're going to tremble or you're going to shake or you're going to fall over. That's not necessarily the case. Whilst at the same time, I'm not ridiculing that because God could work like that if he chooses to. But that's not the defining experience that says God has moved in power. It's simply a matter of faith. We lay hands in faith and the recipient receives that in faith and goes out to do that which the Lord has ordained. Yet we see also this uh, echo from the sense of identification with the goat in the Old Testament. This, sin is, um, this goat is being identified with our sin and being sent out of the camp. Um, do not be hasty in the laying on, on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So fundamentally, don't be quick to identify and affirm and associate those who actually their life contradicts that and will bring you into discredit. How are you affirming someone's sinful self? Openly so. I mean, we're all sinners. We understand that. And this has echoes of 1 Corinthians 5. Don't be quick to just look at someone that's got a, the gift of the gab. Oh, they make a great preacher. Quick, let's lay hands on them. Let's, let's rope them in and get them going before we lose them. But their walk is shaky and flaky. No. And so, um, there is truth in that for us today. And fundamentally, there's a sense of the expectation that as believers, we will be participating in the work of the Lord. 
whatever that looks like. Laying on of hands doesn't just relate to those in eldership, those who are preaching. As we participate in the work of the Lord, there are times when we just lay hands on each other in prayer, seeking to encourage and affirm one another. So it doesn't fundamentally have to represent ordination to an office of ministry in the church of God. All right. Um, the last two, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Aye. Resurrection of the dead. What happens to someone when they die? Very often people say, ah, I know that heaven's just gained another angel. Or that they roam the earth, visiting family members and haunting enemies <laughs> that they're making literal visits to people they come and spoke to me in my dream they came and spoke to me in my dream for others they think okay well all roads lead to heaven all truths are parallel they all get there in the end that's what's going to happen at the end even amongst Christians, there's a subtle misconception that everyone is raised to live in heaven forever. Those in Christ will be raised and given glorified bodies and live in the new heavens and new earth. So if you read the story right to the end, you will recognize that heaven descends and God makes his dwelling place amongst people, with his people, in the new heavens and new earth. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Somebody should say amen to that. Amen. Praise be to God. 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We shall be made alive, made anew. Revelation 20, 4 and 5. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life. And reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. So there is a resurrection unto life 
that will be experienced by those who are God's. Somebody once said this phrase, which is a little bit of a riddle. They said, if you're born once, you die twice. But if you're born twice, you die once. I'll let you think about that as we consider eternal judgment. Eternal judgment. They say hell is a party. My dad used to say that, actually. He used to come into church and say that. Yeah, I got my place laid out in hell. I'm looking forward to it. All of you fools believing in God. Yeah, I'll be down there. And there's this kind of notion, you know, all of the kind of immoral and illicit activities of life will be abundantly enjoyed there. You'll be womanizing and drinking and, and, you know, intoxicated and full of drugs and everything else and the music will be loud and da 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 da. And some people have this concept of hell that it's just going to be all of the worst of life you know for eternity. Some people have the concept that only wicked people go to hell. I'm not Charles Manson. I'm not Hitler. I mean those people go to hell. In fact, actually, there are those that think that hell is the final destination. Seen the films, right? Final destination? Well, hell ain't it. Even more insidious misconception that everyone goes to heaven in the end. What's the truth of the scriptures? All who die in their sin go to hell, also known as Hades or Sheol, where they are tormented according to the sins they have committed. Now, we understand that, you know, when we consider heaven and hell, we're considering realms that are supernatural, spiritual, beyond human experience. They are realms that we cannot experience in the here and now with our senses, although being a a spirit that possesses a soul, when a person does experience them, they will sense what they experience because they still have mind, will, and emotions. But fundamentally, it's something that's beyond our capacity to understand In, in, in concrete, finite terms because it's literally out of this world out of this world. So we have no reference by which we can truly understand it. So we look at scripture for glimpses of trying to appreciate and understand what is to come as it relates to heaven and hell. Well, as it relates to hell, we see this here from Luke 12. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. 
Every, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So this is one of the references that kind of suggests that there are degrees of torment in hell. Now, hell is, is like being held on remand. You know, people get, uh, convict, they get accused of a crime. They get charged with a crime. They get put up before the court. And there's a question of whether or not they'll get bail or they'll go to prison until their, their court date, until their judgment. And so hell, fundamentally, is, a, is like being held on remand without bail. And the, the nature of that experience will have some relation to how you lived your life. But either way, it's going to be torment. Yeah? Those in hell will stand before God's white throne judgment and give account for their lives. So they don't stay in that place of remand forever, but they will come up before God and experience the ultimate judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And there are those theologians that say that the throne was, was white from the heat of God's wrath. White hot heat. White hot anger. God's wrath burned so fiercely to the very throne that he sits on is white with the heat of his anger. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, stand before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. There's no more use, there's no more experience of death. There's no more use for Hades as a holding place. That, the personification is they've been thrown into the fire. Those experiences will no longer be. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So the lake of fire is the ultimate destination, the final destination of one who dies in their sin. If you are here today and you have not committed your life to Christ, you have not submitted to his lordship and you walk out and you die today, that is where you will end up ultimately. Unless you repent and put your trust in Jesus whilst you have opportunity. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life are thrown into the lake of fire that burns forever. Those in Christ do not stand before God's white throne judgment. 
Now I'm finishing and I realize time is far spent. Will you permit me to just wrap this up? Those in Christ do not stand before God's white throne judgment. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And, 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 and here's this for synchronization. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, same chapter and verse reference. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So once you have put your faith in Jesus, there is no longer fear of judgment. Praise be to God indeed. And yet we recognize that those in Christ do experience an evaluation. We stand not before the great white throne in judgment, but we stand before the judgment seat of Jesus, or what we call the beamer seat of Jesus. It's not for condemnation, as in to be cast into the lake of fire, but it's for evaluation. What did you do with the life that I gave you? It's not for retribution. I'm going to punish you now. You, you profess Christ, but you sinned here, there, and everywhere. And No. But it's for reward. Check this interesting verse reference. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. You notice it's one verse on from the other five verse nines. God is on another level. <laughs> oh, my word. For we must all appear, speaking of believers, speaking of Christians, before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So there are rewards, and some will experience a loss of reward, and some will experience uh, uh, you know, a, a, a giving of greater rewards as we stand before Jesus. So this isn't punishment. You know, there will be some of us who will stand before the Lord and the Lord will be like, you know what, this reward was for you, you know, but you flopped. This reward was for you, but your motive was just all wrong. So we'll see the rewards that we could have gained, but, you know, some of us, me included, standing at the front, preaching, serving the Lord. Oh, you know, Pastor E, oh, praise God for his life. He's going to have great rewards in heaven. Really? I may not, because the Lord recognizes the motive. And so, we will stand before a judgment seat, not the great white throne, but it is such that it will be for rewards, not retribution. So in this, we see this outline of the gospel experience. Repentance, faith, baptism, service, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And as we understand and appreciate this, it's, 
I mean, it's an understatement to recognize that, you know what? As a Christian, this isn't just another compartment of our life that we're kind of just ticking a box in. This is our whole lives. This is our whole lives. This is our eternal life. We experience that now. We don't wait for eternity. We're already in it. And that eternal life is not just a duration but and, and, and a quantity. It's a quality of life that we're called to, which is summed up and fundamentally finds its ultimate expression, reference, definition, and meaning in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Not just what he done for us, but who we are in him and how we are to be like him. And so may God forgive us, and I'm going to ask the team to come and join me. May God forgive us for our apathy, our indifference, our whatever. May God forgive us even for becoming hard of hearing, uninterested and unmotivated. Truly, God has created you for his glory. Not for our own, for his glory. And if that grates on you in any way, then please commit that to prayer. You were not made for yourself and you were not made for your own glory, for your own success, for your own happiness, for your own well-being. You were made for God's glory. You know why? Because he's God. He is God. He is God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. How dare us think that our lives are more important than him. He who gave us life. Made for his glory, in his image and likeness, to have relationship with him, to represent him, in order that people might look at you and look at me and be like, God is great. Wow, God. They might hear your story, they might see your life, that they might, and be like, wow, God. Look how they endure trials, look how they endure tribulation, look how they endure temptation. Wow, God. Jesus is something different. I need to know him. I want to be close to him. That's the kind of impact our life should be having. Not, wow, what a wonderful family you've got. Your kids are so well behaved. Oh, look at, you know, your car. You've done so well. Your house, oh, your career. Let's stand. Next week is the final installment of this mini-series. And you may wonder, Ooh, is there more to be said? Yeah. Next week, we're going to consider what the gospel is not. Because a lot of people have made it out to be a lot of things. And I think it would be helpful if we just highlight some of those things and just underline the fact that that's not the gospel. And that's not what the gospel's about. 
Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.